Eric Ormsby is the author of seven collections of poetry, two books of essays, and a number of scholarly studies of Islamic thought. He was born in Georgia, raised in Florida, and worked for 20 years as director of libraries and professor of Islamic studies at McGill University. His poetry has been widely published and anthologized in Canada, the U.S., and Britain. In 1992, he received an Ingram Merrill Award for Poetry, and in the same year was awarded the Q-Spell Prize for Bavarian Shrine. From 2004 to 2009, he wrote a weekly column on literature for the New York Sun, and regularly contributes essays and reviews to the New Criterion, the old books in Canada, the Times Literary Supplement, and Parnassus. He has two sons and now lives with his wife, Irena, an architectural historian in France. France, and Prague, yeah. And Prague. Yeah. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thank you, Nigel. Do you have an aesthetic statement when it comes to reviewing books? Uh, well, I guess the first thing I look for is the kind of language the book is written in. If it's prose, you know, whether it's uh, good prose in my view. And poetry, of course, I look for strong lines. Not necessarily formal poetry, although you know, I tend towards that, uh, I tend to like that as I get older. Uh, but uh, language that arrests me, that captures my attention, whether it's prose or poetry, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So I would say that's the first criterion. Then, of course, uh, there's a question of the content as well. <laughs> it has to be uh, something uh, with some insight. You know, that, that's what I look for. But, insight, uh, something what, that teaches you something? Something, a new way of looking at something? It's more a way, the way in which something is expressed that I find striking or that reveals something new uh, about the world or about the author, for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it has to it has to have some kind of linguistic uh, appeal. That's the first thing. The texture of the language, the cadence, the um, formulations of phrases, and uh, of course that's not enough. I mean, you can't stop there. Uh, you, know, you can have a beautifully written book that says nothing, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, I prefer that to a badly written book <laughs> that says nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right. But well, we put the badly written book down after the first. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, in reviewing, you can't always pick what you review. Uh, and so I, I don't look for books to criticize particularly. I rather praise uh, because I think that's harder to do. To praise intelligently, I find, is, is harder to do. Uh, it's a little bit too easy sometimes to tear something down. Although I do confess that when it's somebody with what I consider an inflated reputation, I take great delight in puncturing it. It's, it's not the most commendable trait. <laughs> but I think it's part of a reviewer's responsibility, you know, to say what something is, whether it's good or bad, regardless of what the author's name or, or reputation may be. And um, I'm happy to praise something, too. It's, I'm, I'm more happy to praise something. Uh, than to tear it down, but I'm certainly willing to. I think that's a part of the job of reviewing, is to be honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's too much, in my opinion, currying favor on the part of reviewers, uh, or they seem to fear that they're going to get a bad reputation if they're critical. And yet I notice that it doesn't apply to films or opera or dance, that uh, sometimes the criticisms are quite savage. But in the world, especially in the world of poetry, 
it's a touchy thing to be critical. Uh, people are very wounded by it. And it, of course, it's too, all too easy to wound somebody, and I don't like to do that, uh, because I know that uh, even if the book ends up not being what I think is good, a lot has gone into it, you know, a lot of hope and mm -hmm. ambition and work. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to tear that apart, but sometimes you have to. And part of my impulse in this essay you mentioned was to defend what's sometimes called the negative review, uh, because I think that's uh, a false category. Uh, I don't, I don't hear people complaining about reviews of films, and sometimes they're quite savage. After all, you have a responsibility to the reader to alert them to what, in your opinion, and I think it always ends up being personal in the end, although I do believe there are criteria for judging something, but uh, I think you have a responsibility to the reader to say, you know, I think this is great, or I think this is overrated, or uh, stay away from it. But I really would accept to review a book that I thought was awful, you know, it, it just wouldn't, wouldn't interest me. The, the essay we're talking about is called Fine Incisions, Reflecting on Reviewing, and it's actually the name of the, uh, the book that you published with Porcupine's Quill back in 2011. You take Fine Incisions from Emily Dickinson. Surgeons must be very careful when they take the knife. Under their fine incisions stirs the culprit life. What does that mean? Well, I took that, uh, I like the phrase, but I took that because, and as I say in the essay, you can make all the best, case in, all the best cases in the world for or against something, but often in the end, you know, something escapes your judgment. And uh, in the poem, of course, she says that surgeons must be very careful when they take the knife because they're dealing with life. And uh, so, too, with a work of, of art or something that, that hopes to be, you have to recognize, I think, that for all your fine arguments and uh, criteria, there may be something that escapes you and your judgment. And we know that from the past, of course. So many things have been torn down and uh, demolished by critics, which turned out to be great works mm -hmm. in the judgment of later generations. So I think the reviewer, the critic, has to be always aware that no matter how finely you make your incisions, uh, there may be something, or there sometimes is something, that escapes that, and uh, that which you don't necessarily see for whatever reason. So the, hum the, uh, the reviewer should be humble. Yes. You know, one of my professors when I was a student would always say, uh, let's see what our friend so-and-so says, you know, we're reading a text. And I always admired that, you know, because it was like we were there to try to listen to what this author, often from hundreds of years ago, uh, had been saying, you know. And so, yes, I think there is a kind of self-effacement mm -hmm. before a text. Yeah, actually, the way you put it is, if the work is truly good something will always elude our analysis. Yeah, I think that's true. And even somebody, and I've often been critical of Harold Bloom, for example, because he, uh, you know, he likes to fool around, and he's, he's very rambunctious and egocentric. And yet when he comes to a text, whether I agree with him or not, he effaces himself before it. And I, I admire that in his work, even mm -hmm. though I've I've been harsh to him on several reviews uh, because he just asks for it, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that's the proper attitude, and I don't think, I think nowadays too often people are looking for some message or ideological statement or political attitude 
in a work, you know, rather than trying to see what the work is trying to do, what the work is actually trying to say in its own terms. Uh, you know, I know somebody who dismissed a friend's poetry collection because, as he put it, I don't like rhymed verse. Well, why did you review it then? You know, I mean, you're not the person to do it, in my opinion. I mean, I, there's a lot of types of poetry I don't care for much, but if I felt I couldn't be fair to it, I wouldn't review it. Yeah, I think, as you say, all great works are great because you feel the need to come back to them. Because yes. maybe you haven't... Yes. You know there's something there, but you're not exactly sure what it is. Yes. So and there's then, a motivation to to engage with it. Uh-huh. I've myself been wrong so often, you know, <laughs> you know that I didn't like so-and-so, and then I realized how completely wrong I was. You yeah. know, as I got older, or I had read more and, or reflected more. And uh, I've had, you know, I've reversed. And actually, that's a delightful experience. You realize, well, gosh, was I wrong? This is a great work. You know, mm-hmm. This is a great writer. Well, whenever you find a, something that you think is great, it's a wonderful experience, yeah. isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, it adds to your life. Yes. But, you know, I, I guess it's an adolescent kind of thing, you know, to dismiss things very arrogantly. <laughs> As you get older, I, one hopes. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy when I reverse my view of something and realize that I had been wrong. For instance? Well, you know, believe it or not, when I was much younger in my 20s, I didn't care for William Butler Yeats. You know, now I think he's one of the two or three greatest poets in the English language. You know, I had to learn um, to how to read him. And, and, and how how's that? I think just by dint of going back to him again and again and hearing the lines, you know, I studied his poetry very closely for a long time and uh, ended up being completely bowled over by his genius, you know. But this, the sound, is it? The sound, the way the verses are put together. And, I, you know, I studied, actually, I looked at his manuscripts when I was in Dublin, and it was a very interesting experience because uh, he would, like, list the rhyme words on the right side of the page. We didn't have the lines. Uh, he just put them together to <laughs> start sort with? Of fill it in, you yeah, know. Yeah. And it was often the beginnings were quite banal. <clears throat> you know, and you thought, there's nothing out here to teach you to drop this one. And then you turn out to be the Wallace ones at cool or, you know. Uh, this is some great, great poem, you know, just by changing a word here or there and working at it. Uh, so that taught me a lot to look closely at the texts. In this case, the manu- they actually let me see the manuscripts. Of course, I already liked it by that point, mm-hmm. but uh, I had no idea of how he had worked, you know, the kind of the way in which he composed his work. <clears throat> and it was, uh, to me, very moving to see this, you know, how suddenly it would all coalesce, you know, and... Uh, in a line, you know. What, Why was it moving? Well, because you felt it was right, you know. And he said himself, when the poem goes right, it's like the click of a box being shut, you know. Yeah. And uh, you felt that, you know, that he's struggling. It's often, it was often, I can't remember examples of him, but, uh, uh, you know, you think, drop it, William, you know, this is not going anywhere. <laughs> and then the next draft, you know, you say, wow. Yeah. You know, it just all fell together. It didn't fall together, but he put it together. And that was very instructive to me, <laughs> uh, his, his, the aspect of his craft, you know. Um, but it was, it was more than craft, you know, because I mean, there were other poets who had good craft at the time. But he just uh, had a way of clinching things in his lines. And, uh, and, and you could see the process by looking through the manuscripts, you know. You could see that something... <laughs> You just think, this is not going anywhere, you know, (laughs) suddenly, it's a masterpiece. 
Mm. <coughs> Not so subtly, actually, <coughs> through many drifts. Mm. <coughs> a change of a word here or there, and it made all the difference. So that was very impressive to me. And I guess you asked earlier what kind of standard or aesthetic. Something like that is what stands to be as a model, you know, that kind of combination of craft and uh, insight that he shows, you know. And the lines are kind of unchangeable now mm-hmm. after all the fiddling around he did, you know, <laughs> looking like it was hopeless suddenly, you know. So he actually he worked hard on them he as did. opposed to them just plopping into his lap. Yeah, I think very... Well, he's talked about... One of his poems is called The Fascination of What's Difficult. And I think he sought difficulty. And interestingly enough, especially as he got older, you know, instead of resting on his laurels, he kept um, he kept exploring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in all sorts of weird ways. Yeah, well, well. <laughs> in terms of sex treatments and uh, ghosts and spirit knockings. And, but I think the kind of... Wackiness was part of it, you know, that yeah. stimulated his imagination. Yeah. Uh, it's odd, though, because when I've gone to Dublin, you know, you see James Joyce everywhere. And, mm. you know, I love Joyce. He's great. But nothing to, to Yeats, you know, and it may be... What, no statues, no... Not uh, that I ever saw. Houses? Uh, maybe one plaque I saw. Right. And, it, you know, but you can follow Ulysses everywhere through the city. Yeah. Uh, and I asked an Irish friend, and I, I think it's because he was identified so strongly as an Anglo-Protestant, you know. I, I, I guess. Also, some people see him as a big windbag, of course. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which he could be. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to go on and on. No, no. Yeah, that's, he's that's, an example. Uh, but of, that's, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, so I would say, further answer to your first question, you have certain models or exemplars, I think, that are maybe not consciously when you're reading something, but you hold it up against these, I mean, Shakespeare, of course, but Shakespeare's inimitable, you know. Yeah, um, that's you know, Matthew Arnold, his touchstone. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right, yeah. Um, and I was brought up on a diet of Shakespeare, so I had the Shakespearean language sort of pounded into me as a child, you know. Yeah, well, lucky you, really, I was to lucky. have that into you. The King is, James uh, Bible and Shakespeare and Milton, you know, those were the three things. My, my grandmother, who was English, constantly returned to and had me read to her when she got blind and memorize. I, I was paid to memorize Shakespeare. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> well, I, had to, I wanted to earn pocket money right, <laughs> to go right. to the movies, you know. <laughs> Got to give them an incentive. Yeah. So it sounds a little odd, but I, I'm grateful to her for that. I'm sure. Uh, it's lucky that you're carrying that around inside you. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Unfortunately, I can't earn any money. <laughs> yeah, definitely not uh, with, with any anything connected with poetry, right? But I think the the point is that if you're as a child, if you're sensitive to language and if you hear good language, it gives you a kind of model that you carry with you. And of course, it's not fair to uh, assess some contemporary poet in terms of Shakespeare, but you still, you know, you have this scale of values and you have this range of well, the standard, you know. Of yeah. course, you know, it would be unfair to say this isn't Shakespeare, but who is? Well, uh, it's interesting you should uh, mention that because uh, and you do have an essay on Tolstoy's War and Peace in uh, Fine Incisions. And after I read that, I had trouble, because of the, the profound impact that it had on me, I had trouble matching that anywhere else. Matching the Tolstoy? The Tolstoy experience. yeah. So, you know, you set your standard that high and <laughs> everything well, else is I, shit compared to it. <laughs> I think you have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that disappointed me in Canada was that 
although I love Canada, I'm, I'm deeply fond of it, mm. and Montreal in particular, but it bothered me that in talking to many younger Canadian writers, they had no interest in English literature or the classics or, you know, of course, Shakespeare, yes. But, uh, you know, I remember talking to a beginning novelist and said, well, you know, Dickens did something like this. Have you read? Oh, no, there was nothing there for me, she said. And I thought, well, how can you even begin to be a novelist without knowing what's been done, Mm -hmm. even if you don't care for it? But there was a very little interest in literature of the past, I found, in many, many, not everybody, but many of the poets I've talked to. Of course, it might be a generational thing, too. Yeah. People my age tended to be aware of all that, you know perhaps a difference in the way they were educated or brought up. <clears throat> but I sense that too many of the Canadian, younger Canadian poets I know were always interested in who had won this prize or that prize, you know. And to me, that's the least interesting thing about a book, you know. Usually, I don't say that all prizes are bad, but uh, that doesn't make a book good, you know. It's about marketing. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Montreal and great, great works because uh, I've just, in this, this past year, I've decided to sit in on some of the uh, the classes at the Concordia Liberal Arts mm-hmm. College that specializes in Yeah, they have the a good program. Books. You know. It is. And yeah. I must say, I'm really impressed with the young students there. Yes. Really. Well, so I don't, it's I don't not mean, all yeah, no, no, I don't mean gloom to, and doom. Well, no, no, I didn't mean to put them down. Um, it's what they've been offered, you know, it's what, mm. what they've been Yeah, there's a very small percentage, of, obviously, that, that go through that, that yeah. program. But to, but to me, you know, I think when I was trying to write poetry in the beginning, you know, I wanted to know all the poetry I could, you know, and to read everything I could get hold of, and I don't often find that, you know. Some, you know, there are exceptions, of course, uh, and I don't want to sound like some old fogey, you know, no. unless you go read Wordsworth, you know. <laughs> Canadian poets, it seems to me, have a access to the English tradition that American poets don't. Mm-hmm. You know, American poets have their own tradition, of course, and it was deliberately stepping away from that, you know, people like William Carlos Williams. But the Canadian poets could be, you know, part of that same broad tradition, and some of them were, of course, uh, just like the French-Canadian poets with the French literature. Kind of different, they take a, a stance uh, it's often at odds with it, but it still could be part of it, you know. Well, one of the great things about living in Canada is you typically you'll you'll find the British edition of uh, you know if you, if you're into the book as object uh, like I am, yes, you 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 get access to a lot of these beautiful Faber uh, Faber yeah, Faber they, they are beautiful aren't they? books uh, that that aren't sold in the state. Well, this was an attempt. I told him to do that that way partly because it was a little bit like a Faber, you mm-hmm. know, just the plain cover without a picture. This being Times Covenant, uh, yeah. your selected poems that were published by uh, Biblioasis. But you know, I didn't mention here, and I should have probably, mm. because I've been deeply impressed by the beauty of Canadian book design. You know, and especially many of these small, I guess small presses, yeah, the word, yeah. right? Real they strengths, really do yeah. beautiful. I mean, they're mm-hmm. American examples too, but it seemed to me Canadians have excelled in that, you know. Yeah. And uh, some, I mean, Goose Lane and uh, Coach House, Coach House, and, uh, Porcupine's Quill that published uh, the the book that we're currently talking about. Yeah. Yes, they do a beautiful job. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gasparo Press, of course. Gasparo, yes. Yeah. Uh, on the West Coast, there was it Mission. Uh, West Coast with Talon. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know this much better than I do. Yeah, but I, that would be a separate essay. Though, yeah, by yeah. somebody who knows it better than I do. But yeah, yeah. It was one of the things that at first impressed me in Canada was what beautiful objects many of the books were. You start the essay by saying, "As long as books are made, judgments will be made about them." The review is little more than a snowflake riding the backdraft of a book's larger meltdown. <laughs> but I sucked you into uh, I sucked you into giving me uh, your aesthetic statement because a critic that we both admire, William Logan, said. To write about your aesthetics is no better than revealing your secrets if you're a magician <laughs> or returning a Mark's stolen wallet if you're a pickpocket. <laughs> that's typical Logan, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's also that I don't really think that way. You know, I don't, I'm not a philosopher and I don't really think in terms of formulating principles, but uh, it's more instinctive, I guess. But you, yeah, you're right. There are obviously criteria that you that you have when you that you bring to bear on these. Uh, yeah I think it's important to uh, to to especially when you're talking about prizes I think it's important for judges to reveal that oh yeah no that's and they don't typically. they don't but that's a different matter and I agree with you that's that's a matter of integrity I think I would certainly try to if I were in that position yeah I, I was a judge once or twice I didn't enjoy it uh, very much partly because of this thing I was talking about earlier that you have a depression of something, you form a judgment, and then maybe later you think I was wrong, you know. And it's, I think with poetry especially, it takes some acquaintance. It's not just, you know, you go to a reading, you hear a poem for the first time, and you may hate it or love it, but you really don't know it until you've spent some time with it. Yeah, well, as um, you say, I mean, it's taken that poet years to yeah, get to that. Yeah, yeah. You, you really do uh, need to, to give them time. And, and yeah, I don't to, think you should demolish something lightly, you know. Yeah, yeah. And Logan, I'm afraid, does not lightly. He's very clever, very and, yeah. and very intelligent, and very fun to read. Oh, he has some wonderful one-liners. <laughs> I met him a couple of times. I don't really know him, and we corresponded. But uh, uh, I do. I think he does a very important. He fulfills a very important function. Well, he's uh, been on plagiarism lately. Quite, quite. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't uh, know. Yeah, that. yeah, pointing that out. As well, you well, know, you should. need somebody like that who maintains a standard. And mm -hmm. I mean, he's, you know, the line you always hear, he's the most hated, hated man in America. It's yeah. kind of silly, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why should he be hated for saying the truth, of, or at least as he sees it? I think he's a little too prone to, how would I put it? Well, what I said before, this, this tendency to want to deflate the overblown, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he might do that a little too much, but that's part of the... The, the charm of reading him, you know. You talk about uh, the fact that there are differences in reviewing practices and protocols in uh, in between the Canada, UK, and and the US. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's true. You, you think it still holds true? Well, as far as I'm aware of it, I mean, I don't read. I read some. Well, yeah, I, actually, I do read Canadian, American, and English or British publications. Mm. Uh, I find them quite different. Mm -hmm. uh, the American ones tend to be much more timid, or maybe that's not the right word, much more circumspect, you know, reluctant to blast something, I mean, except mm. for Logan and people like Logan, uh, whereas the English are just savage. And, the, uh, and I love them for that. I do too. It was so refreshing to me the first time I read, say, The Spectator, you know. I thought, well, they can't say that, but they did. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it goes too far, I guess, but... 
I found the, I got really tired of the American and Canadian, I would have to say, kind of timidity, you know, or reluctance to make a judgment. But that's what a critic is, a judge. And uh, you can take it or leave it. You can say, you know, I don't like this person. I think he's biased or whatever. But And I do think, too, and I think I said it there, that it, it should be personal. You know, it should be an expression of your aesthetic. Uh, it shouldn't be attempt to be some kind of Olympian judgment, you know. People know where you stand if they've read you before. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they expect a certain slant on things. And it's good to read critics that you agree with and disagree with. I, absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot from people I wouldn't normally agree with. And, I mean, I don't always agree with Logan either. I think he's often willing to make a judgment in the form of a wisecrack, you know, for the sake of the humor of it, you know. He's very good at taking people down. He's not as good at praising but maybe he finds little to praise. You know? Yeah, yeah. You talk about uh, doing justice to the book in terms of a review to convey something of its substance, uh, if not its essence, uh, in a few hundred world words, is not entirely unlike the effort required to write a sonnet. Both demand compression, both depend on logical progression, and both, if one is successful, produce a kind of music. So how do you get music in a review? I think by the structure of it, uh, you know, by using certain uh, themes. I mean, you know, in a, in a review, a typical review, you can't say that much. You can, if you're lucky, make two points, usually mm. one. Mm. And uh, you have to realize that at the beginning. And that's, well, that's like a sonnet, too, that you have one theme that you're trying to express in 14 lines. But I meant more in terms of structuring it and shaping it and giving it a kind of flow that has a kind of, can have a kind of musical effect but that's partly the way I think. I mean, when I write, I like a well-shaped reviewer essay. You know, can you describe that shape? Well, it would start with some premise that you're trying to uh, to illustrate, and uh, would give you some sense of the book itself. Of course, that's the whole point. Uh, but and then it would it would involve some kind of judgment or some kind of evaluation of the book, but uh, done in a how would I put it exactly? I think of it as a kind of a lyrical form, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it may not seem that way, but that's how I think of it, and that's how I approach it. I always have to have the, as with a poem, I always have to find the first line, and that's the hardest part. You know? <laughs> yeah. Writing the review is not so hard, <laughs> because the first line determines everything. The so tr- once you've got that first line, everything else clicks into place? Well, like uh, it, yeah. Yates? I can't do <laughs> I can't do it always that way, but that has to be the key for me. Yeah. And um, hmm. the trouble is that after writing these weekly reviews for five years and and for other thing other publications, I began to think in thousand word segments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thought, it's, it's not it's not one hundred and forty four letters. No. Thing. It's <laughs> but still it's it's limiting, right? Well, it's limiting in a good way. Yes. And yeah. I saw. Looking over the earlier ones I did and the later ones, how I improved, I thought. Mm. You know, I became more concise. I didn't, uh, I wasn't so self-indulgent. And, you know. Then when someone would ask me to write a 3,000-word essay, I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? <laughs> it's you know? right. I've <laughs> I, had I, it. Yeah. I got so used to compressing everything, you know. And I think that's a, that's a good discipline. I mean, poetry involves compression, so. And I don't care for reviews that just ramble on. I don't... Uh, you want them to get to the point, I guess. Well, the, and also there's a practice, especially in the New York Review of Books, if they're writing about a novel, to give you this lengthy plot summary. You know, well, why? Mm. If I'm going to read the book, I don't need that. I want to know something about it. You know, from the reviewer's point of view, and not 
not just a Reader's Digest kind of thing. Yeah. The New York Review of Books does that invariably with novels. Uh, TLS does it too sometimes. Much of its artfulness lies in catching the attention of distracted readers, but you need to keep their attention and stimulate their curiosity. Did I say that? You, know? you did, yeah. Well, I think that... Uh, and, and to appeal to our innate sense of justice. Yes, I think so. I th- it is about justice, you know, mm. or at least as best you can see it. Mm. You know, I mean, you may be wrong, of course, but uh, you're trying to either do some restitution for somebody who hasn't been fairly treated, or you're trying to praise somebody who deserves it. You know, it, it is a matter of justice. Yeah, it's funny. That's I, I, I've written some reviews, and any negative review I write, it's, it is about justice. Yeah. It's about why a, you know, this, a particular work of poetry wins a wins a prize, and I don't think it's deserving of that. Oh, don't get me on that. <laughs> it's, that's, that, I take umbrage at that. I do too. And uh, that's when I'm motivated to, to write and say, listen, like, wake up. Yeah. This is not well, worthy of a prize. I agree with you, Nigel, completely, and I think that is a strong motive. Uh, and I don't want to write always about so-and-so shouldn't have gotten a prize, but, and I don't usually, but it is a matter of justice. Mm-hmm. You know, you, mm-hmm. I think that's a very important function for a critic to... I mean, you might be wrong, of course, and you always have to admit that. And the hardest thing to acknowledge, though, is that whatever you write is going to be forgotten in a day. Yeah. You, know, you spend all this time, and sometimes I spend a couple of days on a short review, mm. and you have to realize that it's going to end up in lining a litter box or a parrot cage, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and be for completely forgotten, and you can't... Yeah, but, but uh, Eric, that's just like our lives. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, you hope that a short story or a novel or a poem lasts longer than a few days, but, you know, you make a judgment. People, but in the overall scheme of things, though. Yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, people, as I do, would skim a review. You know, they're not going to, mm, your mm. wonderfully turned phrases, you know, is not going to, I mean, although I have gotten a lot of emails from writers saying how much they enjoyed the way that they liked thought my review, I'm not boasting, but no. thought their reviews were very well written and they admired that. Well, you talk about... Being strangely elated when we see justice done. It's true, isn't it? But you have to convince people that it is just what yes, you're doing. Yes, yes. That's, of course, the hard part, to lay it out in the beginning. So that uh, it can't be seen as a kind of a, you know, getting even with somebody. It has to be based on the work. And there are, there are poets, I must say, I've been very, <laughs> very savage to. Like who? <laughs> Well, Mary Oliver always got my goat. Uh, she comes, the first one comes to mind, mm-hmm. and others. Um, it just, well, there's a certain element of pretension and um, artifice in the bad sense. I don't mind artifice if it's art, artful. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't like um, people who play to pander to a certain kind of audience, you know. To, the poetry doesn't seem authentic to me. Mm. She comes to mind. I don't know her work that well, but... Uh, I was asked once for an English magazine. They have a feature called Overrated, Underrated. And uh, I said, well, I can think of many overrated. I said, who do you want me to do as underrated? And they said, Alfred Lord Tennyson. I said, what? He's underrated? He's no longer taught in schools. And so overrated... Now he's underrated. Before he Yeah. Oh, yeah. Certainly wasn't. Wasn't he the Poet Laureate? Yeah, yeah, sure. In his lifetime, he was celebrated. Mm -hmm. But uh, then they said, overrated. Well, of course, I said, there's a long list. Uh, but they wanted me to say that Paul Muldoon, the Irish poet, and 
So I, I didn't really know his work, and I sat down and read it all. And I thought, yeah, he, is, he has been overrated. So, I mean, I didn't attack him, but I just, you know, contrasted him. But that doesn't win you any friends. No, Paul it's Muldoon hazardous. was the editor of The New Yorker for many years, so I knew I couldn't. You know, I used to be published there, but I couldn't anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I had to say... Well, it was bold, but, well, but also well, you wanted to tell the truth. Absolutely. And I, I think that's... I, I know so many poets are so pusillanimous, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I'd say to them, well, why does this so-and-so... Like Helen Vendler is a good example. Mm. It's like a literary dictator. And I'd say, well, why? She's not that good. And they were afraid to say anything. And one of them even said, I'm afraid to praise her for fear she'll misinterpret it. I thought, well, if she's this great scholar, how can she misinterpret it, you know? But all the poets I knew were terrified of her judgment. Well, it's so careerist, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. See, to me, that's one of the things that's been wrong, at least with American poetry. Canadian, too. You know, I don't think, I think you should say what you think and mm -hmm. not be beholden to some critic's opinion because she has the keys to a Pulitzer Prize or... Mm. whatever else mm. and, but they, these it's a married couple of poets they just were terrified to say anything you yeah. know and I, mm. I, I thought that was awfully distasteful so it's, it kind of goes against <laughs> everything that that a poet actually yeah, means well, yeah it was about career yeah it wasn't about poetry and see that I think is a very bad feature of I, I haven't read much poetry criticism of late but when yeah. I wrote that essay Poets and novelists uh, have taken refuge in, refuge in university positions, making poems and novels almost robotically the same. There's a cozy blandness that seeps into criticism, too. Niceness. <laughs> uh, a critic has no business being nice. <laughs> a critic should be just to his or her own convictions, this isn't the same as being impartial. Yeah, I think that's true, still. Um, you know, I, I get really irritated when I read some, like the New York Times book review on Sunday. It's almost never that you read anything truly critical. I don't mean necessarily negative, but critical. You know, it's, it's all very bland. And, uh, it's even more so with uh, poetry criticism. In matters of literary judgment, we prefer the Weather Channel. <laughs> where all squalls are at the mercy of the remote. <laughs> this has meant that in Canada and the U.S., criticism and book reviewing have become, more often than not, vague, mushy, and self-serving. That's still the case? I th well, as far as I know, I'm, you know I'm not, I haven't kept up with the reviewing in Canada lately, but I think so. I mean, you know, there's a whole other side to this, which I didn't go into, that, mm. that there's a lot of personal affiliations between critics and po you know, the poets, they were novelists they write about. And that's yeah. something that could be libelous, so you can't get into that. But uh, in Canada, that's been a big problem, and also in the U.S., you know, that a lot of the uh, prizes and positions are people doing favors for each other, and uh, I guess what they call it, networking. And I don't, I don't like that at all, but it's hard to point the finger. You know, you'd have to really document yourself. But I know so many examples, like with the Canada Council, you know, that... I think is really scandalous, frankly. But um, stir up a hornet's nest, and you have to have the goods to. But all, it's all anecdotal. But you know, yeah. a winner this year becomes a judge the next year and gives the prize to the judge who chose him or her. Uh, there was one case in America with this poet. This is another poet I don't care for, Jory Graham. She gave the prize to her ex-husband, 
and said she didn't realize the book was by him. Well, you know, come on. And then she also gave it to her lover, another prize, again claiming she didn't recognize the book, you know, really. But that did cause a scandal, to be fair. She got kicked off the judging committee. But there's a lot of that. There's also exclusion of contrary opinions, which you suggest leads to a deadening of discourse, mm-hmm. especially these days. Yeah, well, when I wrote that, it was certainly true. You know, because I've written, as you mentioned, uh, a number of pieces over the years for the New Criterion, mm. which is considered a conservative, is a conservative journal, culturally. It rarely expresses any political opinions, although I can guess what they are. Uh, they're certainly not mine, but they're seen as so conservative that people won't refuse to read them. And yet it's one of the best magazines in America. I don't know if you're familiar with it, well-written, intelligent, and, you know, has a different view on things. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I love it, uh, or I have. I don't know what happens in the age of Trump now. But, but, you know, people told me they refuse to read it because they, they think it's right-wing. And I, I, maybe it is, I don't know. But uh, I like them because they, they bring to light things that have been passed over or forgotten, writers and ideas, and, uh, and they prize good writing. You know? So to me, that's very important. Um, but you know, it's a minefield, especially in the US now. No, let's move away from the minefield then. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, do they have mines? In the uh, the the Battle of Borodino, <laughs> I don't know if they had. I don't think they did. Did mm-hmm. they? I don't think so. No. Thank God, it was bad enough. <laughs> that was in 1812, the greatest massacre in recorded history. Mm. So uh, you read War and Peace, yes, and then did you uh, go out and get Adam Zamoyski? Zamoyski's uh, history afterwards. I read War and Peace many years ago for the first time. Yeah. Uh, Zamoyski's book I read twice because I thought it was brilliant. But you read it to inform yourself? No, no, I read it just because I was interested. But, it, but of course, that's a central part of War and Peace. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I was interested in the whole 1812, you know, yeah. uh, campaign. Uh, no, I read it because uh, I started reading it. It was so good. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up reading it twice. So it was just a coincidence uh, War and Peace I had read, oh, I don't know, many years ago, but there were some new translations, and I guess that was the impetus behind this, that, uh, was it the, what are their names, the husband-wife team? Pavir, oh, yes. Pavir the, and uh, somebody. Uh, Pavir and uh, Volohonsky. And then there was also, I think, a, penguin, a new Penguin translation, so I think that was what the original impulse was here. But for me, you know, Tolstoy, I was so struck by his obsession with death and fear of death, I should yes. say. Yes, yeah, you uh, start, that's how you, I think that's how you, that's up front in the, uh, yeah, in, that, in the review called Secret Lightning Flashes. In terms of the, um, what I've read of Tolstoy, which isn't everything, of course, but that seems to me a leitmotif that runs through all of his work and which gives it a kind of intensity, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. gives his love of life an intensity. You know, yeah. Because he was absolutely terrified, you know, he was paralyzed but often. I can't say morbid fear of death, we all have it, but it was very acute in his case. Mm. Then, of course, he had his poor wife, whom he treated horribly. What did she I was a workhorse. 
Did she copy War and Peace out five times? I, I think you said seven times. Seven times. <laughs> God. Yeah. And I looked into their letters, her, her letters and stuff. What a life. I mean, yeah. Thirteen kids? Yeah, that's right. I forgot that too. Yeah. But at the same time, he was such a terrific, I mean, just incomparable. That's the word. War and Peace is, to me, unforgettable. I mean... And, of course, Anna Karenina, too. And, and the short stories. Yeah. Things like The Death of Ivan Illich or Master and Man. You know, the novellas and short stories are just, I think, unlike anything else. I mean, the events are given epic dimension, serve principally as occasions for self-revelation for the characters caught up in them. Mm-hmm. A beam of light which illuminates characters from within, often to their own astonishment. Well, the, the example is the Borodino, you know, with, you know, with, uh, who is it? Uh, the character has slipped my mind now, but he's lying there seeing the soldiers rushing towards him. They, they want to kill me, whom everybody loves. You know? <laughs> yes. You talked about, sorry, this, it was this sort of an illumination, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what, what made it so wonderful was that you read it because I read it because I felt it was teaching me about life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was a great storyline, but I, I savored those lines about how important love is in a person's life. Yes. And he illustrates it, you know, in a mm-hmm. very unforgettable graphic way. I, I, I mean, I must admit there's, there's some long things in War and Peace that I could do without towards the end there, but... Uh, yeah, he kind of gives a history lesson in theorizing, parts of it, yeah. He? Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't matter. You know, it's overwhelming. His, yeah, his comments on history mm-hmm. itself. And the way he can portray even a character like Napoleon and make you feel as though you know him, you know? Yeah, you talk about fleeting moments of irresistible exuberance. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, secret lightning flashes. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it's like when Natasha you know, is, is out hunting, and she suddenly lets out this this whoop, you know, this just complete animal kind of exuberance, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And that's so startling and yet believable when you read it. And you can imagine her doing that. It illumines her whole character, you know, both the tragedy that awaits her and, uh, you know, her present circumstances. Uh, so I, I think only in Tolstoy do, can I think of that kind of moment where you get that, a character's it revealed in a flash. Well, yeah, you talk about uh, uh, naivety in moments of crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like the guy lying there thinking, "What they want to kill me? <laughs> Everybody right. loves me. How can yeah, I? <laughs> yeah, and I'm so important. Like, yeah. it's my life they were and, talking but about." But I can imagine thinking that, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, or like Ivan Ilyich, you know, uh, he remembers his schoolboy syllogism, you know. Uh, uh, Socrates is a, a man, all men are mortal, Socrates, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. That's right. <laughs> you know? Well, you really, it's interesting, isn't it, how your whole world is inside your head. That's your world. Yes. That's yeah. it. And Tolstoy, for all his nuttiness, had this ability to get in people's skins and uh, their, their feelings, you know, in a way that you, 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 you believe it. I gather in, I don't know Russian, but I gather in Russian his prose is very odd, but... Oh, uh, I don't know, but uh, doesn't in English it certainly works. <laughs> and I, you know, I like him so much better than Dostoevsky. I know it's another one of those prejudices, I guess. But. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I love Dostoevsky too, but uh, but he doesn't seem to Dostoevsky t- 
tends to preach a bit uh, in a religious way. Yeah. Especially the way he ends up things. Uh, I loved him when I was, again, when I was in my 20s. I read mm. Karamazov three times, and mm. but now I can't tolerate it. You know, it's funny. You talk, yeah, you talk about inconspicuous epiphanies underpin the relentless onrush of historical incident. I think that's how he does it, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, you could write about the Battle of Borodino in all kinds of ways, I guess. But the way he does it is, is makes it so convincing because it's how it impinges on the characters and their deepest selves, you know. Yeah, and you, you talk about the meticulous accumulation of detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he was superb at that. Which is interesting. Uh, jumping ahead a bit here, because I want to touch on your poetry to, to sort of end this off. You are uh, praised for for that kind. In fact, uh, one critic called you a voyeur. <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> your examination of animals and moths and mm -hmm. uh, sea creatures and such. Did you get that from Tolstoy or no? No, no. Okay. I think I got that from in my childhood. I was obsessed with reading books of natural history, and uh, I grew up in Florida, which oh, there's lots of it there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, snakes, lizards, you know, you name it. And that was my ambition as a child to be a naturalist or a scientist. Hmm. But I don't have that kind of mind. Well, you do in a in a sense, in a poet's sense, you do. Yeah, but I. I had trouble with the slide rule, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tolstoy explained in a note, the aims of art are not to resolve a question irrefutably, but to compel one to love life in all its manifestations, and these are inexhaustible. I think that's a wonderful statement. Mm. Uh, I subscribe to it. Yeah. I think that's why one responds to him, so you feel that. In, in almost everything he wrote. You know, he doesn't seem to exclude things from his universe, you know, he accepts it all. The actual review itself, uh, yeah, it's difficult because it, it was a new translation, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and you know, given that you don't speak Russian, you're not really, you can't yeah. really tell, but you did compare it to another yes. translation that, uh, was it Brig? Briggs? Uh, I think so. And uh, you said that, to their credit, they are less interested in prose style as such than in, quote, Tolstoyan prose, yeah. a prose of robust awkwardness, as Nabokov yeah. described it. Yeah. Well, I thought that was interesting. That's that husband and wife couple, you know, mm -hmm. Lavir and Volokhansky or something. Yeah. Um, I thought what they did was interesting, but I didn't think it was always pleasant to read in English. You know, it was... Uh, sometimes annoying and distracting because they were so concerned to reproduce his Russian peculiarities of his style. And I don't think we're used to seeing that in Tolstoy. We're used to seeing him as a much smoother kind of writer yeah. uh, in the translations, the old ones. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'm glad they did it, but I don't know if if it's fully successful, you know. I, yeah, I, t I had trouble with it. I, but uh, but again, maybe it's just because I, I loved the, uh, was it Maud? Elmer. Yes, me too. I, I love that. Yeah, what's wrong and with I, those? <laughs> yeah, I, and I didn't, I didn't want to, I don't like someone, I don't know, I, I just, I preferred my, yeah, me too. my first encounter. Me too. Yeah. And I, I think there's a case to be made for that, you know, I mean, I guess she made mistakes, of course. Um, but it's so beautiful. Oh, yeah, they read yeah. so well. And so when you come to this from that, I think it's harder 
Um, but I thought the other one that I contrasted it with worked well that way, but then you could say he smooths it all out, you know. But I don't, you know, I would learn Russian if I wanted to read it that way. Uh, it's, that's not why I read it, you know, Tolstoy. And they've done other, I don't care for their other trends, Dostoevsky mm-hmm. and Gogol. I mm-hmm. find that, I don't, I don't know if I like their approach so much. I like the way you end up your, your review. And in the end, that is how this greatest of novels reveals itself. Not through the rattle of musketry and the pounding of artillery, but in small successive flashes when the startled recollection of death is at the same time a reminder of how deeply and with what urgency we must love life in all of its inexhaustible manifestations. That's lovely. Thank you. Well, I believe that, you know. And I, I do think with Tolstoy that's, aside from his other, his other qualities of genius, that that's what draws one to his work, you know, that, that exuberance, that sense of life. Just uh, finally with fine incisions, uh, <clears throat> I'd just like to look at the review you uh, wrote of perhaps an underappreciated uh, Canadian-slash-American poet, Daryl Hine. Yes. Mm-hmm. I brought along a copy of... Uh, where is it now? It was right here. Yeah. I think it's on the bottom there. Oh, yes. Contact Press put out... I think this is his second... Uh, second collection of poetry called The Carnal and the Crane, uh, the McGill Poetry Series in 1957. Irving Layton's wife, Betty Sutherland, did the, did the jacket. It's kind of nice to read his poetry in that edition, I find. Yeah, I have a couple, of anything like that, but I have a couple of his earlier editions. Mm-hmm. He was actually rather prolific when you look at his, you know, the list of his books. He was born in British Columbia, but he left, what, at, what, 20 or something like that? He came to McGill, did his first degrees at McGill, and then he got a position as the editor of Poetry Magazine at a pretty early age, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, He's the first Canadian to do so. uh But he was kind of a paradoxical figure, I think, because he occupied these influential positions such as that, but he didn't seem to have any repercussions much in America. Uh, I mean, he was admired, you know, and his fellow poets praised him, people like Richard Howard and others. But it didn't seem to have any great resonance. I never understood quite why. Uh, he was more acclaimed, I think, as a translator uh, from Greek and Latin than as a poet. And yet he's a... I have to be honest, though. <laughs> when I was sent his book to review, I didn't like it at first, you know, his collected mm. poems. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Recollected. Recollected Poems, um, 1951 to 2004. I read it over a year before, I, over the course of a year before telling them that I would review it, because the more I read it, the more ad- admiration I felt for it. Hmm. But it seemed at first reading kind of cold poetry, you know, kind of aloof. and I like formal poetry, but it was almost too formal. Mm. Uh, but then as I read it over the year, off and on, I... I came to admire it and uh, ended up feeling a great admiration for it. It wasn't easy poetry to to sp- respond to initially, and that, that may explain why he wasn't uh, as popular as he might have been. He was influential, but that's a different thing. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, there's one poem he wrote about, I think it was like the television news. I love that poem. Oh, yeah, but, you know, when you get to know them and you, you, you see what he's trying to do, I think you... Then it's different, you know. But on first glance, 
you know, I've seen his poetry over the years in various venues, but uh, to sit down and be confronted with his compilation of his life's work, uh, well, of course, it left out a lot, too. It was kind of daunting, I guess. It seemed almost forbidding at first, but the more I read it, the more I got into it, the more I warmed to it and uh, ended up feeling great admiration for him. You talked about the first, you know, getting the first sentence right. <laughs> so here's how you start this one off. This, the essay is called Ultimate Distillations. Paul Verlaine, no slouch when it came to eloquence, advised aspiring poets to take eloquence and wring its neck. <laughs> I've used that quote more than once. Oh, probably, have you? <laughs> probably used it too often, at least twice. Uh, but you talk about uh, Heine's uh, poetry being some of the most sumptuous, accomplished, and beautiful poems of the past half century. That's pretty I think that's high true. praise. I think that's really. true. But again, I, there's a funny element I can't quite define that I guess it's a personal thing that, you know, you can admire something mm. for its, as I do uh, in that sentence, but without warming to it. I don't know how to put it exactly. I think so he's I, kind of formal? It's that partly, but it's also he has a certain distance, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything to, to flatter the reader. But I think that's a virtue, actually. And I think his poetry will last partly because it has that quality. Of, and that's the point you make in the review. Yeah, I think it's one of the points, yeah. I think he was a, he was a very, I wish I'd known him, but mm. I never met him or corresponded. He seemed to be somebody who was very prominent and yet very reserved, you know, who kept himself as out of the light, out of the spotlight. And yet he, he was involved in with many other poets who were, uh, like James Merrill or Richard Howard or others, mostly other gay poets, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much that has to do with it, but uh, there seemed to be a shared aesthetic, you know. Yeah, you suggest there's no form or genre of which he's not a master. That's right, yeah. And you know, his, I didn't mention it, so I don't think much in there, but his translations are marvelous from Greek and Latin. But he's, I guess you, <laughs> I hate that word, elitist, you know. I guess he would be seen as an elitist kind of poet. But I am surprised that he's not better appreciated. I, of course, he did get a MacArthur Award. It's not as though he was neglected. So do you remember exactly what you did in the, uh, the review to, to make that point, or is it... Uh... Well, I wanted to show, first of all, how incredibly skilled he was, you know, and, how, and also how witty... But ringing eloquence uh, neck, why did you start off with that? <laughs> I don't remember. Because <laughs> he certainly was. Well, you know, he's very eloquent, but he also is subverts it, too, all the mm, time. Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe he's not overly eloquent. He's a master of rhetorical effects, and he, he knows everything there is to know about eloquence. But he also knows how not to use it, you know, and, or how to counter it. Uh, so he uh, writes against himself, too, in some ways. He looked outward for his subjects. He yes. is the least confessional of poets. Yeah, that may account, too, for his lack of recognition. Uh, that's true. I mean, he does have personal poems that writes about uh, his uh, relationships and things, but it's always do it's not done in a confessional way or anything like that. He's not letting it all hang out, you know. He's very controlled. Mm -hmm. Everything is controlled, and you either like that or you don't, you know. Uh, I tend to admire it more than like it. But I ended up thinking he was a really an exceptionally fine poet. 
But as I say, it took me a year to get to that. Yeah, yeah. Because I could see he was skillful. You know, I mean, mm. there's no question about that. But you know, to to want to respond to respond to it is another story. It's like Auden. I've never been crazy about Auden, even though I, I obviously he was a wonderful poet. Mm. But it never affect you know never personally touched me his work. Uh, so, something similar there. The aim, after all, is not self-expression, but the recreation of words of an experience in which the universal is made personal. That was very important to me to say because uh, so many poets, younger poets especially, seem to think that as long as you express what you're feeling, um, that that's uh, sufficient. But I felt that what's important is to find a a form or a manner or a way in which you make your personal experience something that other people can experience too. You know, just to proclaim my feelings so, so what yeah yeah uh, but uh, that's one thing I prized in him too that he he tried to find a I guess what Eliot would have called an objective correlative you know the something outside yourself that yet contains the emotion and allows other people to feel it and I think that's one of the things I like about say Yeats again you know that he finds a way in which I can enter that experience even though I have nothing to do you know with Ireland or Yeats or anything but uh it's not just a matter of being universal, it's a matter of finding the proper form of expression that allows somebody else to share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and moves them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think too many poets are just proclaiming how they feel. Yeah. You know, what do I care? Yeah. yeah. I want to feel, not you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like we were talking about Tolstoy, you know. Yeah. You can identify with his characters. Yeah, you, you really are eloquent in your praise of him. Heinz's poetry is at once learned and lively, grave and witty, ceremonial and sprightly. Uh, He shows his considerable gift for satire, somehow managing to be at once comical and touching. He writes poems which give pleasure to the reader, uh, and the pleasure is admirably complex. (laughs) Well, I think that's very important, you know, that he gives... To give pleasure to the reader, uh, to be central. That, the whole point of it. You know, yeah. why, why bother otherwise? Do you give misery? <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, perhaps. I oh, mean, sure. you want maybe you sure. maybe you need to express your misery, and the poet helps you do that's that. That's fine, but but not uh, but all I think, the time. After all, it's an artwork, you know. It's a, yeah. I don't want to go to the opera and hear some soprano complain about her private life. You know, <laughs> 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 she can express it through her singing. This communicable pleasure arises not only from the poet's manifest joy in his art, his delight in the savor of words, but from the sheer exuberance of language itself. Mm-hmm. That's huge praise. Yeah, it is. Well, I meant it. I, I still feel feel that way about him. Although, again, he's not somebody I turn to, you know. He's not one of my favorite poets. No, but, no. But I, I do think he's worthy of admiration. Listen to this here. This is your final sentence. In these beautiful poems, it is as though words habitually mauled and misused rejoiced at finding themselves for once so ultimately distilled. Yeah, that's how I felt. Do you put as much thought into the final sentence as you do into the (laughs) first? More. (laughs) More. The first sentence gets me going. And uh, it has to, of course, be carried through. But uh, no, I do take pleasure in the lessons. That's very important because that's what you're leaving people with. 
Jason Guriel, the critic I was mentioning, I interviewed him several months ago. Oh yeah, I don't. We've corresponded. I never met him. He calls you, and, and it's a loaded word, but he calls you one of our most voyeuristic poets. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> An Ormsby speaker first appropriates and then composts nature into convenient truths. Composts? Yeah. Huh. Well, Jason is very astute. And, uh, you know, I had completed, I thought, a collection of poems. And uh, Dan Wells said, I'm going to send it to Jason for his comments. And he made a lot of very interesting, intelligent comments, and I withdrew the collection. <laughs> Not because of his comments, but just because I realized it wasn't ready. Mm. Uh, but his comments were very sharp. That was for this collection, no, Science no, Covenant, never, or a more, it's a never more been recent one? It's not been published. I see. Thing okay. I've been working on. Uh, you observe cracks and crevices, corners and alcoves. You collect animals, garter snakes, is spiders, this him? Is this him? moths. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. In fact, I find found his prose in, in your in his review of the book a little bit purple, a little bit overly purple in a review. And I noticed that you don't put much purple prose. I try not to. Yeah, and that that's evident. And uh, I think I have uh, done that, but I I think I outgrew it. Yeah. I certainly try to stop myself from doing it. Well, and yeah, I think a lot of poets are, are prone to doing that. And it's, it's not... A lot of poets don't realize that prose has its own rules. Mm -hmm. You know, they think they can be effusive. And uh, again, it's the same in prose as in poetry. You have to make the reader experience something. Yeah. Not just express your thoughts. Amanda Jernigan says, the refrains in your poems are not... I am, but I like. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which. Yeah, that's true, I think. Oh, so you interviewed her too? I did not. <laughs> Just saw the quote from her. She's a smart lady. Extraordinarily precise, original, memorable descriptions. So let's get into them. <laughs> I'm not going to try and evaluate or talk about them, I don't think. We've done, we've done enough of that. But I would like you to, to read some of them. Perhaps, do, uh, do you have such a thing as a favorite or not? Of my own? Yeah. I can't think offhand. There's some I like better than others, of course, but. Okay, which are those? Oof. What about Rooster? Yeah, yeah, I wrote that for my mother, yeah. Can I get you to read? I'm gonna get you to read a few of your poems, okay, if you don't mind. Sure. I guess you could say, you know, that I grew up during a period when this so-called confessional poetry was so prominent, and I felt a kind of revulsion from that, so I wanted to do impersonal poetry. <laughs> it never is, of course. No, it's uh, but, uh, what you choose is who you, you are. You, you like to think it. Well, I think... Uh, Sylvia Plath probably did it best, and yeah, and, and, she and was you brilliant. She was truly yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and but okay. but from there on, I'm not so sure. Yeah, and I think uh, unfortunately she's been surrounded by so much melodrama. You know, I kind of spoiled her. For, I remember when Ariel came out, I saw it in the bookstore window and bought it. Um, and it, <laughs> you hang on to that copy or not? No, unless <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had. Yeah, and I, I admired what she did, but. 
I got so sickened by all this stuff about her marriage. And yeah. Ted Hughes. And Suicide, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here comes Rooster, and it's for Tippy. Is that your mom? That's my mother's nickname. Hmm. <clears throat> rooster. I like the way the rooster lifts his feet so jauntily exact, then droops one springy yellow claw aloft, just like a tailor gathering up a pleat. And then there are those small, surprising lilts, both rollicking and staid, that grace his bishop's gait, like a waltzer on a pair of supple stilts, or a Russian on parade. I like the way he swivels and then slants his red, demented eye to tipsy calibrations of his comb and ogles the barnyard with a shopkeeper's stance. Sometimes his glossy wattles shudder and bulge as he bends his feathered ear and listens, fixed in trance. When drowsy grubs below the ground indulge and then stretch up for air, how promptly he administers his peck, brisk and executive, and the careless victim flip-flops in his grip. I like the way his stubby little beak produces that dark, corroded croak, like a grudging nail tugged out of stubborn wood. No cock-a-doodle-doo, but awk, awk. He yawps whenever he's in the mood and the thirst and clutch of life are in his squawk. Chiefly, I love the delicate attention of the waking light that falls along his shimmery wings and bubbling plumes, as though light pleasured in tangerine and gentian, or sported like some splashy kid with paints. But Rooster forms his own cortege, gallants himself in marigold and shadow, flaunts his scintillant prismatic tints, the poorest glory of a country town. Now, one of my favorites, if you don't mind. No. We'll do two or three if... Uh, okay. And we'll read this, well, you can read this one out of the first edition. <laughs> Maybe it's the only edition. <laughs> uh, it is the first edition, only edition, yeah. Yeah, it's called Bavarian Shrine and Other Poems, uh, published by ECW Press. They did nice books, too. They did lovely books, yeah. This is 1990, and the poem I'd like you to read is uh, Wood Fungus. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Wood Fungus juts in gray hemispheres like a horse's lip from tree trunks. The outer edge is crimped in sandy ripples and resembles surf. The upper plane of the fungus does not shine, but is studious beige and dun, the hue of shoe soles or the undersides of pipes. <clears throat> Jawbone-shaped, inert as moons, neutral in tablatures, they apron bark and pool rain. Underneath they're darker, fibrous and shagged. Mountain artists like to etch delicate patterns on their flat matte skins and their tobacco-bright sketch marks look burnt as tattoos or tribal tangles of scars. When you grip their surfaces, they bruise. When you pry them from their chosen oak, they seem shut fast, like the eyes of sleepers or the tensed eyelids of children when they're scared. Yeah, I love that horse's lip. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
That is such There's a, a Canadian thing. artist who liked that poem too, and he did a beautiful engraving mm. showing, I can't remember his name now, he has a French type name. Mm. Brian. It's awesome something, you know, like a French aristocratic kind of name. Maybe it'll come back to me. Mm. He did a beautiful uh, engraving. Okay, now it's your turn to pick the final one. Okay. Well, I'll read the garter snake. It's not about your penis. <laughs> oh, you read that business. That was so stupid. That is stupid. George Elliot Clark hates me for some reason. And uh, I actually wrote a, a limerick about him, but uh, I didn't publish it. <laughs> the stately ripple of the garter snake in sinuous procession through the grass compelled my eye. It stopped and held its head high above the lawn, and the delicate curve of its slender body formed a letter S, for serpent, I presume, as though diminutive majesty obliged embodiment. The garter snake reminded me of those cartouches where the figure of a snake seems to suggest the presence of a god, until more flickering than any god, the small snake gathered glidingly and slid, but with such cadence, to its rapt advance that when it stopped once more to raise its head it was stiller than the stillest mineral and when it moved again it moved the way a curl of water slips along a stone or like the ardent progress of a tear till deeper still it gave the rubbled grass and the dull hollows where its ripple ran lithe scintillas of exuberance moving the way a chance felicity silvers the whole attention of the mind. That puts me in mind of uh, an Irving Layton poem about a garter snake. I don't know that. Yeah, it's, I'll try and dig it up for you. Thank you. It's great. I liked Irving Layton, but I didn't know him personally, but I saw him a few times. Mm. Yeah, no, he used to talk about full Did of life. Did you know him? I didn't know him no. at all, but full of life. Oh. Really. And the poor full guy. Full of other things, too, but uh, on occasion, but still. The poor guy, you know, his, I don't know if she's his wife, deserted him and took all his savings, you know. I didn't realize she took all her savings. Yeah, she cleaned out his bank account. Oh, goodness. Ran off with a Turkish wrestler. Who could make this up? And um, he was 80, I think, at the time. And so the whole community of Montreal got together and had a benefit for him at the Centaur Theater. We all, you know, the money we paid went to him yeah. to help him. And the big buzz was, will Leonard Cohen show up? And he did. They were close. Yeah, he was like mentor. Mentor, yeah. yeah. Cohen showed up. You know, he was a short man. Showed up with his statuesque blonde about six feet high. You know? <laughs> yeah, typical. But he spoke beautifully about Irving, and uh, it made the, you know, I mean, there were other people too, of course, yeah. but uh, it was touching because uh, he was left destitute. Well, isn't that the same sort of thing that happened with Cohen, his manager? Yeah, he was swindled, yeah. He was cheated by his manager. Yeah. But he was able to make the money up again. Quite right? easily. He just went on tour. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's the difference between a musician and a poet. <laughs> yeah, the poet goes on tour, he comes back broke, poorer yeah. than he left. Yeah. yeah. But Cohen, we were living in London at the time, and my wife wanted so much to go because all women in Canada love Leonard Cohen. <laughs> they do. 500 pounds a seat. I said, I'm sorry, I like Leonard Cohen too, but I can't afford that. <laughs> Just buy one of his CDs. Yeah, well, that's what we did. Yeah. Oh, I admired him enormously. 
Okay, finally, in Time's Covenant, your, your selected poems. In assembling this selection, as in the writing of the poems themselves, I've benefited continually from the attentive eye, unerring taste, and elegant sense of style of my wife, Irena. She has rescued me again and again from my worst tendencies. <laughs> What are those worst tendencies? <laughs> Exaggeration, uh, bombast, uh, overwriting. That about covers it, I guess. Okay. <laughs> if these have persisted despite her best efforts, my own stubbornness is to blame. Her love and constant encouragement have sustained me throughout. Well, that's true. She's a wonderful reader and um, has really, she can tell when something's false, you know, or pretentious or, or off in some way. That's one reason I withdrew that last collection because she read it and said, no, don't publish this. So she was right. I mean, there were some good things in it and I'll still do it, but... You still persist to try and get it published? Oh, I can get it published easily from Dan wants to do it, but yeah. I want it to be the book that I feel... You know, I don't want people to say he's lost it, you know, he's... Well, typically poets do lose it in old age. Yeah, they do. And I see it's, it's much harder to write. Mm -hmm. slower. And That's uh, why Hemingway killed himself. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons. And he was younger than I am. <laughs> Not that I'm like Hemingway, but... He got uh, the white beard. <laughs> but it's true. You know, on the other hand, there are compensations. You write more slowly, but you're more careful in choosing the right word, trying to. Yeah, so there's some compensations. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you. I've been speaking with Eric Ormsby, poet, critic, in Montreal, Canada. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Bibliophile Podcast. My name is Nigel Beale.